I, I'm a fan of ordering the kinds of things that make um, pub staff roll their eyes at me, but um, within within reason. They've had a, they've had a the tough old, couple of months. The old peas and milk gambit, weather spoons, that's always a good one. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have this, Matthew, this whole like ordering peas for people meme? Have you come across no, this? no, that's 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 why I think I once described the weather spoons app as the, the peak of human progress. <laughs> <laughs> it was just pure innovation. And now everyone has apps. And I think it's it's excellent. It's like the, it's a great victory of the pandemic. Is that I have to spend less time interacting with bar staff, and I can just get something <laughs> delivered straight to my table without having to stand up and do the awkward conversation. And I really sound quite antisocial here, don't I? Yeah, but you also sound very British. You, you're a kind of poster child for immigrant integration by saying that you don't like talking to people. So congrats on that, I guess. <laughs> Shall we get this show on the road? Let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts and head of programs, Daniel Pryor and Aria Babu, senior researcher and a head of female founders at the Entrepreneur Network. This week, we'll be discussing the return of the pub, Generation COVID, and race relations. Pubs and restaurants have reopened for outdoor dining and drinking, but rather than celebrating, many are horrified by the antics of revelers and the likes of London's Soho. Dan, should we be worried about people enjoying themselves? Isn't that just a disgrace that's going to lead to another wave of COVID infections and more deaths and mayhem and misery? Yeah, it's an absolute disgrace. And I, I feel as though you're kind of pointing that one at me, talking about specifically going out in Soho, because that was, in fact, where I went out. Were you, the, were you actually out in Soho? How, how was the atmosphere? Was. It, it, it might have been a leading question, but I'm, I am suggesting that you're a murderer, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Out in Soho. I completely agree. It was, it was an absolute disgrace. People were enjoying themselves left, right and centre, and I, for one, won't stand for it. I think it was absolutely terrible. Aria, do you agree that Daniel's a murderer? Almost certainly, yeah, but not not, not fit. <laughs> uh, I think it is worth pointing out that um, this is absolutely no surprise. It's exactly what happened in the summer. There's like a Puritan set on Twitter obsessed with um, condemned people who are enjoying themselves. The rates of COVID are down. It was all, all outdoors where we know the risk is quite minimum. Um, is this just another blot because the media likes to blow things up? I think there's a real... Um... There's a real sort of heuristic that some people use where it's like, if it looks like fun, then it's probably bad for COVID. And if it looks difficult and boring, then it's probably fine. Yeah, I, I have someone say this about broader COVID restrictions. They're almost designed not around limiting the spread of the virus as much as they are limiting fun. So banning golf, for example, makes practically no sense. Golf courses are places where you really don't interact particularly closely with other people. But if we're going to close down everything else that we need to shut down, golf courses as well i mean that that is true but at the same time if you're someone who follows planning regulation and shutting down golf courses maybe a bit of tasty revenge for uh, for all the greenbelt stuff out there so i'm i'm less bothered about that although my dad if he does listen to this podcast be extremely unhappy because golf is one of his favorite things to uh, to get out of the house and he hasn't been able to do that for, for quite some time so he's quite annoyed but yes i completely agree on the whole um th- this kind of almost puritanism for puritanism's sake thing even when the risk is very low and i mean if you look at a kind of recent polling people are often embarrassed to admit this but there is a 
significant subsection of the population that has actually enjoyed lockdown um, more so than, than average life. Um, I mean, and as someone who likes playing video games, I have some sympathies with that. I, I don't agree with it myself. But I think people often will, will look for an excuse almost um, to, to have that attitude. Obviously, there's, you know, people who, who have quote-unquote legitimate concerns about um, infection rates, although the sort of activities we're talking about reopening are particularly low risk when it comes to outdoor drinking and dining. But the, the other piece of polling that I really liked is... Um, is quizzing Brits on whether they think at the reopening people are going to behave responsibly. Uh, and when they're asked themselves whether they're going to behave responsibly, then 91% say they definitely or probably will. <laughs> I want to be the guy who admits that he's not going to act responsibly because <laughs> that guy is in yeah. for a good night. That's just that's just good self-criticism, right? That's just being honest with yourself. It's like, actually, I've been locked up for the last six months. I'm probably not going to be as responsible as I otherwise would have been. Yes, I tend to drink to excess. <laughs> I will have all the shots, please. I want to feel like trash the next day. As, as someone who gets you golf polls, I'm quite sad I didn't get the opportunity to answer that one. But um, on, on the other hand, you've got the, the same poll asked people whether they think other members of the public will end up behaving responsibly. And of course, the figures, not completely, but they kind of flipped around so that 26% of people trusted their fellow members of the British public and two thirds of uh, people did not, in fact, trust uh, the members of the great British public. So quite the contrast there, I think. So what we're seeing is, is really the return of alfresco dining, um, which has been kind of loudly and, and widely accepted as a success of COVID, perhaps with the exceptions of Soho, who, uh, Soho residents who are shocked to discover that they actually live in a quite um, social part of the world. Um, I, I suppose I'm kind of interested in what this tells us more broadly about kind of COVID and bread tech cutting and the opportunities for business and, and kind of things that we can learn from the pandemic. We've had a lot of discussions previously, I suppose, about um, working from home. Um, but, but what other kind of changes of regulatory changes in the pandemic area have you seen, I suppose, especially from an entrepreneur's perspective that you might welcome? So one of the ones I saw quite early on was um, restaurants automatically got the license to do takeaways as well. Like that one seems like an obvious one that they're never going to turn back. Um, there yeah. was no, there was no reason for those to be different regulations in the first place. Yeah, um, I'm more skeptical that we're going to keep our fresco dining because councils love to make your life difficult, and they really love to make the life of like old residents easy. You've got to remember it's 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 that classic poison effect of a small number of people, which is the older residents are the ones who are the most annoying and most likely to go to council meetings, whilst people who are partying are probably aren't up in time for them. Daniel, what what, what are you celebrating and, and hoping and seeing? Oh, I'm just, I'm celebrating being able to go to council meetings again as someone who regularly does that. That um, I, I strongly strongly agree on the the kind of skepticism about some of the Alfresco dining stuff being retained. Although I again, it, it seems so obvious. Like it seems so obviously a good thing that we've had re relaxation of planning restrictions when it comes to things like setting up gazebos outside and dining on pavements. And I think that actually for the people that that have been getting a taste of that, myself included, it's a pretty good proof of concept that we don't need these sort of regulations in, in normal times afterwards. So maybe actually people will start um, going to council meetings again if they realise that their, their pavement dining is being taken away. Uh, I, th I think like you've, you've got to look at all of this as a pretty good example of popular free market deregulation libertarianism in action. And 
one of the concerns is that people might not end up recognizing that. Um, I, it's a real opportunity, I think, for, for free marketers to kind of say, look, this is our stuff, this is our prescriptions, and they're helping you to get away from the absolute misery that has been this lockdown over the past six months. And actually, we should be able to, to do that more broadly. And I, the takeaway example is an absolute classic. There's just so many things that we've done during lockdown that just are absolute no-brainers. And hmm. just because they've been done almost in, you know, in this emergency situation, people have a fear of the unknown often when it comes to deregulating. And one of the, the kind of key barriers to, to deregulation in various spheres is, you know, oh, we're going to see a fall in standards or oh, something's going to go wrong. As soon as it actually happens and people realize uh, this is, you know, the brave new world of free market libertarianism is people getting slightly inebriated on the pavement rather than, <laughs> you know, a kind of <laughs> end of the world scenario. It's, it's, it shows that it works. Yeah. Although, of course, not foolproof. I think one of the most disappointing things during the pandemic in this respect was the flag and they were going to get rid of Sunday trading laws. And then the government very quickly mm. capitulated on that point. I mean, it, it was completely crazy to say we need to continue these quite bizarre specific rules. You can only open between six hours between the hours of 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. If you happen to be a larger store, but you can open whenever you like if you're a smaller store. It's just it, it just kind of like a nonsensical rule. But unfortunately, that's the, the government wasn't willing to push through and, and do the political battle that it might take to get rid of that. It was a classic fight from the Thatcher years as well. Yeah, I was, I was really hoping for a change in that. And you know, full disclosure, I think this is would have been a great example of disaster capitalism in action, <laughs> a kind of deregulation that you wouldn't get in normal times, but given the changing circumstance, you were likely to get. And and I honestly thought that we would get it as well. I, I thought that you know the, the case is just so obviously strong for helping to space out things, it, it, literally saving people's lives, reducing infection rates by spreading out uh, shopping over an extra day, etc. But no, there's still too much objection to, to Sunday trading laws. Same thing with opening hours as well, because like they proposed to let councils to open, extend the hours at which businesses could open, and there was like basically no takers, I think, which is really annoying. Yeah, none at all. That is a disgrace, as some might say. Um, another interesting part that's been flagged this week and is perhaps a negative implication of the pandemic is growing nanny statism. Uh, you've got the obsession from the government with things like calorie counts on menus that's been shelved apparently or banning online junk food advertising latest plan um, who knows if these kind of things are ever going to actually happen is to require pubs to print calories on pints all right if you saw a calorie count on a pint would you be more likely to get it or less likely to get it i actually think maybe i'd be less likely to get it it depends actually no last (laughs) night when i went to the pub i was like i kind of want a snack but i i I don't want to eat at a pub so i decided to get quite a heavy like guinness because i was like this is this is food and a drink soup yeah so in that particular situation i probably would have gone with the higher calorie drink um but no i think in general i think this might work on me daniel for me it's the complete opposite um i read some of the reporting around these proposals to have require pubs to print calorie counts in their alcohol and their beer taps and stuff and alongside a lot of those reports in the media was various representation how much in a pint how much in a gnt etc i thought it was way more 
um, I'm, I'm really happy. I'm going to be drinking far more than I'd initially planned. So, um, so I guess that's one kind of unintended positive consequence is that I, I get to have more fun. For, for the calorie conscious, the classic tip, of course, here is to get the vodka lime soda. That is the lowest calorie drink you can order at, a, at the pub or, or at a club. Uh, if if that's what you're worried about, or maybe go for the Guinness if you're trying to maximize calories, isn't it? I think that there might be some evidence as well of like classically from McDonald's that people who are you know really hungry go for the high calorie things that they see printed on that menu in front of them, or for yeah, people who like, are that's gonna that's gonna fill me up, right? Yeah, and classically, um, the unintended consequence of this is doesn't really reduce the amount of calorie intake by people who um, have an obesity problem, but by people who are anorexic, they are obsessively calorie counting seeing the calories before them all the time makes them more aware and and more likely to um, partake in dangerous kind of eating behavior so i think that's probably one of like one of the findings is that it's basically women of roughly healthy weights are the most impacted by calorie counts on stuff um and like i think that's probably why i'm like yeah i probably would slightly change my behavior being like very much the kind of the demographic that no one really cares about shifting the behavior of Mm, yeah, it's uh, it not really reducing the, where it's meant to. Um, just before we move on, I'm interested in grabbing um, our thoughts about Boris's comment this week that the vast reduction in COVID cases was a result of the lockdown and not of vaccines. Um, that's been criticised uh, by certain sections who want to kind of highlight the importance of vaccines and worried that it might lead to some vaccine hesitancy not to highlight the impact of vaccines. Um, Daniel, do you think Boris was wrong to say that? No, I think, I mean, if you, if you technically look at it, he's right. I can understand the concerns about encouraging vaccine hesitancy. But certainly we saw that the initial big drop in cases was earlier on in, in January before mass vaccine deployment. And obviously vaccines have had an impact. I think it, it's fair to say that, the, you know, Boris acknowledged that as well in his comments. It's just that lockdown has had the most impact at the moment, at least. We're starting to see the effects of vaccines come in a lot more recently when it comes to um, discrepancies in, in age rates and things like this changing um, around case numbers. But I think you, you've got to acknowledge that lockdown has played arguably the more significant role to date. Now, obviously, vaccines, you know, they, they, again, they're starting to, to have more of an impact than they were before. But you can tell that story without necessarily saying oh vaccines aren't as important as we thought they are obviously the impact of them is going to be more long term and the impact is about uh, as much suppression and making sure we keep those numbers low um, as they are about actually reducing the numbers themselves yeah i think it's right I'm, I'm very happy to defend you know if you go back and listen carefully to exactly what boris was saying he's 100 percent correct what worries me is the interpretation of what he's saying and the context in which he's saying it which is to effectively say don't let down your guard yet. And I kind of understand the point that authorities are trying to make because they don't want people to let down their guard, especially if they've only had one dose and there's still a risk of variants and whatever else. But at some point, we're going to have to accept the vaccines work, accept that the population has been vaccinated and reopen society and never lock down again um, unless there's an extraordinary, extraordinary circumstance that would truly justify it. I think we have to have some faith in vaccinations. We have to have some faith um, in our ability to contact trace and monitor for new um, variants and ultimately the goal has to be to treat COVID like the flu. Now that we have a vaccine, like we have a, a flu vaccine, 
um, yes, just like the flu vaccine, will need to be updated regularly because there could be new strains that are less effective against the vaccine. But overall, it would be insanity to shut down society every winter because of the flu. And I think that's pretty widely accepted. And we can't be doing the same for COVID. I, I just don't think that's a sustainable path for humanity because otherwise there's no end in sight. There is always a risk of variance. This, the COVID is probably always going to be circling somewhere in the world. And if we just continue with the same strategy again every time our quality of life our ability to travel will, will basically never return to normal the, the new normal will not be something um like what we've known for the rest of our lives and i think that's going to have to take a kind of changing approach to risk and reward but one that will be worth it in the longer run um i'd be keen for your thoughts on that that point as well though um and, and what your reading is in terms of the, the government strategy yeah well so i think part Part of like what the UK government strategy seems to have been is to lie a little bit about the effects of vaccines to encourage people to continue to lock down, which I do. I do understand. But then they discourage getting the vaccines. Like it's an insane strategy, right? I do. I do get it though, because like I was in like the first wave of people who got vaccinated because I was volunteering at a vaccine centre, and I remember thinking this was when um this was when vaccination rates were really really slow, and I was like, if we continue at this rate, none of my friends are going to be vaccinated until next year, um. And I was pretty sure that I was like basically safe at that point. Um, but I also knew that it would be like really hard for all of my fellow 20 somethings um, to see like me and then like a handful of people in their 70s going out living their lives because we felt safe while they basically still had to continue locking down. And I remember thinking that was a kind of really horrible situation. So for ages, I pretended I hadn't been vaccinated just because I thought it would it would make people sad and frustrated and find it like much, much harder to continue with lockdown when they saw how many other people were enjoying their lives. So I think there was something productive in it, even though like I generally think you shouldn't lie to people. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sceptical about this kind of ongoing public health approach to not quite tell the truth, to say masks don't do anything because, you know, the noble lie, we need to save masks for healthcare workers, or to say that there isn't human-to-human transmission because we don't want to freak people out. I would remember even like, you know, virus scarer-in-chief um, Anthony Fauci, I think said many wise things and said not, many not wise things over the, over the last year. He was downplaying the virus last February. Um, same with um, New York authorities who said, you know, go hug a Chinese person because they were worried about anti-China sentiment. That, that was the, I think it was the chief medical officer kind of equivalent in, in New York State who said something along those lines. I think we'd be really careful that... Um, public health officials stop playing this kind of weird um, behavioural psychology game. It's, it infuriates me to no end uh, because changing your narratives is exactly what's going to cause people to lose faith in what you're saying and the inconsistencies are, are going to be caught up, especially when people are paying attention. Yeah, there's like a, a kind of short-term benefit versus long-term loss here where each individual you know, lie that you tell or, or or slight mistruth or misreading of the situation might actually improve things on a particular measure in the short term. But as you say, the culmination of this is to undermine faith in these sort of institutions that uh, is really the most important thing, I think, for successfully getting over um, getting over COVID and the pandemic. Well, on that note about getting over the pandemic, let's have a bit of a chat about the COVID generation. COVID has killed the old, but the social, cultural and economic impacts have undoubtedly had a significant impact on the younger generation as well. And there's often an ongoing debate in media and amongst friends as to which generation has come off worse during the pandemic or whether it's even wise to 
pit generations against each other in the first place. I guess going to you, Aria, first, do you think there's a, a clear-cut generation that's borne the brunt of the uh, costs of COVID, or is that not a useful way of looking at the problem? Well, I don't think it's that useful, um, but there clearly seems to be some kind of correlation where the older you get, the more likely you are to be terrified and then also maybe die. Um, so that's one way of like the virus going very, very badly for you. But, but the younger you get, the more the restrictions seem to have ruined your life that year. Um, I think I think teenagers have probably had it the worst, worst with all the GCSEs mm. um, and A level um, screw ups, and that uni students got you know basically like trapped in the whole prisons um, with people they didn't know, and then people in their twenties who live in small flats have like had to make bigger sacrifices than people in families, and people in families with young kids found it harder than people in families with older kids, you know. And so it does seem to be that lockdown is worse the younger you are, but COVID is much, much worse the older you are. So everyone's had their own burden, but it's been different. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of the time when, when this came up recently, young people were described as, as a lost generation. And that's something that was said again and again because of, um, you know, the, the impact of lockdown. And I, I worry that, you know, that, that particular phrase is kind of reminiscent of entire villages of young people being shot to pieces in, in the First World War, which is not not quite the same level of magnitude. Um, so I, I wouldn't kind of overplay it to that extent. Uh, and I'm someone who I, I think maybe, in contrast to, to some of my friends and, and peers, does actually think that old people have, if we're going to make a cost-benefit analysis, had it harder here. Um, if you look at the infection fatality uh, rates in different age groups, you know, it, nature estimated a while back it was something like 0.03 percent for people uh, my age and our age for example uh, for people aged 75 it's over 11 percent uh, and that to me is is enormous um, and I think you have to remember as well that generations certainly aren't islands and actually if you look at recent polling the majority of young people have been despite the the suckiness of lockdown a uh, very technical term I'm using there uh, they have been genuinely consistently supportive of lockdown measures because I think by and large they're willing to to pay this price uh, to keep their parents and their grandparents safer um, which is not to say that young people have had it easy uh, even separate from COVID obviously young people face their own sort of challenges when it comes to policy. I think it is worth though though Daniel kind of acknowledging just the impact this is going to have on a lot of young people's lives. So let's say, let's split this into a couple of different groups. If you're under the age of about 10, the last year is is maybe somewhere above 10% of your entire life has been in this bizarre situation. That's that's the way you know the world. And we don't know, I think those people will probably, those people will probably be fine, but they've lost a lot of primary, potentially primary education. They might be a little bit further back in their reading, in their, in their mathematics. If you're a little bit older into your teenage years, Probably not so bad. If you've got your A-levels coming up, you've, you would feel pretty disadvantaged. Although whether or not you won the lottery of having teachers who like you or not and getting those grades and getting into university. If you then got into university, um, you didn't exactly have the normal experience. And you know, a lot of formative experiences are quite social and, and half the point of university, especially if, if you buy the Brian Kaplan argument that universities are signaling, well, another function is that they're, they're good socially it's good for building networks and who you know and who you, who you meet and, and that's a lot of fun but geez if you went to what is the university of manchester and then got immediately locked down into your tiny student halls and your university was putting 
um, security on the front door and effectively <laughs> unlawfully um, imprisoning you, uh, arguably. I think you've, you've had a pretty bad time of it. And then into your 20s, I mean, young people are just a lot more social. The, the kind of things that, that we do depend on interacting with other people. And the fact that we haven't been able to do that for a period is quite detrimental. Now, I, I think, though, this becomes just a bit of a kind of silly arbitrary argument, of course, because, of course, a lot of people have had to isolate as well. A lot of vulnerable older people have had to be shielding for a long time. They are more at um, harm from the virus. And I think most young people, as you've said, Daniel, have been more than willing to do this, um, and rightfully so. And I think that's almost a, 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 a reassuring sign here. You know, I've heard for so long mm-hmm. about the downfall of community and how people don't care about each other anymore and how the neoliberal state and Thatcher and Reagan, they destroyed all these great things about society. But it turns out when, when push comes to shove, people really do care about the community they live in and are willing more or less to make huge sacrifices, not completely and totally, and, and they shouldn't be expected to do that for infinity. But I think that there's probably a good story there in some senses. So I don't know the value of necessarily pitting generations against each other, but probably worth acknowledging and understanding um, how people have across different age groups experience the pandemic very differently. Another way in which young people have lost a lot more jobs, particularly since young people have jobs in hospitality and, and consumer-facing roles that um, have lost it. Uh, we did a poll about a year ago um, that identified that quite well, that it was something like um, 70% of older people hadn't really felt any financial impact of the, of the pandemic, whilst um, it was in like 50% of um, younger people, and it's probably blown out since then, since it's obviously gone on for longer than we first expected then. So there are those financial impacts as well. So it's, it's a, I think, yeah, it's quite a complex story. There's a very similar relationship when you look at gender as well on the pandemic. Men, um, men have been more likely to die from the, from the disease, which is real bad for them. Um, but women have been more likely to lose their jobs. They've been more likely to take on way more childcare stuff, way more work in the house, kind of working from home. Way less likely to have access to a home office because they've been working at the kitchen table where people can bother them about things. I think that's very similar to the young-old relationship. Again, older people, easier time with lockdown, harder time with the virus. Men, easier time with lockdown harder time with the virus yeah definitely the other point here to think about is how young people and older people to, to a lesser extent have got more opportunities to kind of cope with lockdown through technology so i mean we were playing chess over discord a few days ago i, I remember and that that's a kind of perfect example of how if, if this pandemic had come you know 20 30 years ago we wouldn't have had a lot of the same coping mechanisms and Often this is used as a point to say, well, young people have had it easier because they can just hop on Discord with their friends or message each other on Facebook. But actually older people are doing that a lot as well. Um, and increasingly so, the kind of narrative about, you know, oh, old people don't know how to use Facebook and that sort of thing. I think, I mean, I've had Zoom calls with my grandmother in Ireland a fair few times. Like My mum's WhatsApp group is constantly popping, as she likes to say, um, <laughs> which cringe as hell. But regardless, like you, you've got... I think all generations being able to take advantage um, of, of those kind of new opportunities. But if we're thinking about specific targeted measures for um, for young people, I know you and uh, our senior fellow Sam Bowman have been thinking about this a fair bit recently. What what have you got for us, Aria? What sort of things can we do to help young people um, and give back after some of the, the lockdown woes? Yeah, so the obvi- obviously there are there are big things you can do to make the lives of young people um, better, like solving the housing crisis and stuff. But the whole point of sort of these ideas are things that are basically free and not too burdensome. You don't have to do major politics, potentially, to get them done. 
first on the list, which is a very, very personal one because I love throwing house parties, is to get rid of noise complaints on Friday and Saturday nights, both for both for like parties and garden parties especially, um, but also for like pub opening hours. Pubs should be able to extend their opening hours and neighbours shouldn't get to complain about the noise that that ensues. And my neighbours personally can't complain about me throwing house parties. <laughs> As long as I get invited to these house parties, sorry, I'm not going to complain about that policy. Yeah, you, you're going to have people complaining to you in the window. There's this really loud Australian accent that kept going all night. I'm not sure what was going on. <laughs> I've only lived in this flat during um during the pandemic, and our neighbours have already given us noise complaints for things like running the dishwasher and playing the piano. So like, they don't know how good they've had it. <laughs> I'm beginning to think that these policy suggestions are extremely personal, Aria. Now this is a purely revenge upon your older neighbours. I am a I am a young person, so anything that helps me. Um, <laughs> the other one that I um I like the idea of is stopping the annoy a teen um sounds that people can put outside um outside businesses. Are these the are these the mosquito things that yeah. make the really high pitched sounds? Yeah. Yeah, they're high pitched. I um I was gratified to learn that I am still young because like I took a walk down Fulham Palace Road the other night at about eleven o'clock and it gave me a headache. Mm. <laughs> I feel like this section is becoming less policy solutions for young people and more th- things that bug Aria, which I'm all for. I think this is a great section. We should do this every week. <laughs> You know how councils get really, really down on you if you, like, leave bins outside? If you do the kinds of things that make the lives of older people unpleasant as part of your running your business, councils fine you and they make your life much more difficult. But if you do something that just makes the life of anyone under the age of 25 harder, nobody seems to care. Mm. The the noise complaints one, I think, is especially good suggestion. It's kind of like, obviously, you know, you, you can make a a free market case about our externalities from noise pollution, etc. But I like to think of it as, as reparations in a way, in that we haven't been able to party um, or, or see friends or anything for, for a year. And that's something that we as young people especially want to do more so than uh, our older neighbours. Uh, and actually, we should, we should damn well be able to do that for, um, for a period of time, at least. I'd like to put on like a very boring hat and point out a few like of the bigger policy things that to think about. Um, one of the things we found in that poll I mentioned a little bit earlier was that young people were actually more supportive of tax cuts after COVID than older populations, probably because they realised that they're the ones who are about to get burdened with the cost of the debt and the cost of services um, to older people. It kind of disproves the idea that younger people are a bunch of communists who just want to you know pay more tax and have more public services. Um, we're going to have to have a proper investigation of the triple of the pension triple lock because because right now that's going to have an absurd impact. Not only did it increase by automatically two point five percent last year, but because it's um, locked to the highest of two point five percent inflation or wage increases, when wage increases go back up this year um, because of the pandemic, you're going to have a huge increased pension burden um, on mm. future generations, and that's a huge intergenerational issue. Uh, that governments haven't really been willing to touch and also have to think about making sure that um, older people save for their retirement, you know, pay a larger contribution for like of pension costs and um, costs for aged care and care homes and, and, and whatever else. I think those are the, the kind of big meaty financial things that are going to have to have a reckoning over the coming years. And I think younger people can make an argument that because they're being willing to sacrifice so much, um, for older people, that they shouldn't be burdened with uh, higher taxes to, to fund 
services in a kind of Ponzi scheme-esque way for, for too much longer, that the system isn't sustainable in that respect and that they, they shouldn't be repaid with congratulations for all these sacrifices. You will now be have to pay higher taxes uh, forever to fund all these other services that we want to do that have nothing to do with COVID anyway. Mm. This is the real one for housing as well, actually, because housing is obviously one mm. of those things where they've made the like they made the lives of older people much better by making it so that you can buy a three bed house for ten thousand pounds like fifty years ago and have it be worth maybe a million now, depending on where it was. And the absurdity then that we're not willing to use that capital in any meaningful way. So we've created a regulatory system in which it's hugely beneficial to older people due to the planning restrictions. You can't mm. build more housing, so the cost of the, the value of the housing they're sitting on has gone up. But then we're not willing to make in any meaningful way, people dip into that to pay for their retirement or pay for, you know, care home costs or whatever else it may be. I know that's political dynamite or political nuclear weapon, um, as Theresa May saw with um, her policies. But we need some kind of discussion about that kind of situation as well, is how to get the equity out of all these houses so that people can actually benefit from what they're sitting on. Yeah, I think we're we're heading for a real stage of inequality where whether or not you can afford to buy a house will be dependent on how many kids your parents had or your grandparents had, because it will be about how much you inherit from that massive bung of stored up asset wealth. And it really will be about anything to do with how much you earn in your life. Mm. Yeah, as an only child, I'm I'm intensely comfortable with that situation. But <laughs> on a broader societal level, I think that it's uh, it's it's definitely not ideal. But With that point, uh, I think it's probably time to move on to the last section of our podcast on the government's recently released race report. The government's race and ethnic disparities report has sparked furious debate. Uh, The report controversially concluded that while racism and certain disparities are real, institutional racism may not exist uh, as or be as prevalent as we thought in Britain, and that the UK is in fact a global model for race relations. There is some debate over whether or not the, the kind of report did conclude that institutional racism exists. They tend to accept the so-called McPherson definition um, that, that it does, but I think to a certain extent downplay just how significant it is. Uh, and ultimately, they don't tend to look in detail at areas where we might expect um, to find institutional racism. They don't do an analysis that that can find whether that is the case in, say, the NHS or, or the police or not. Um, and when we recently did a webinar on this topic, of which Aria was a part, one of our guests, and the Catwiller of British Future pointed this out as, as kind of saying we need a whole, you know, a whole new report if we even want to approach and, and look at that issue. Um, but we're going to Aria first as someone who uh, was on that webinar with me. Do you think the report painted uh, an overly rosy picture of? race relations in the UK or actually is it important to acknowledge some of the progress that has been made over recent decades? So I actually think the report was quite good. I think a lot of the headlines around the report were needlessly incendiary, but I think that was probably a conscious choice by the government when they press released it all because they want to fight the culture war. The report itself, I think, was quite even. I think it was quite good at acknowledging places where racism really is a problem, like in police, but also saying, look, the, these are these are cases where um, the narrative doesn't doesn't match what people are saying, and actually, like education doesn't really seem to have big problems with race. I think I think it's pretty good that they were they were even and um, accurate with how they were reporting on things rather than just fitting into one narrative or another. Yeah, agreed. The, the media reporting around this was, was definitely of mixed quality with some kind of correctly acknowledging that the report 
was nuanced and, and didn't, you know, say, oh, racism doesn't exist or racism is the worst thing in the world or anything like that and, and it's got worse, etc. Um, one of the, the kind of points that I found really interesting to focus on is actually that point that they made about the progress that has taken place in the UK. Um, and it's often unfashionable, I think, to focus on on progress because, you know, oh, you're just saying things are better and you're therefore tacitly denying that there's any problem. I don't think that's true. Acknowledging progress isn't about denying that there are still issues. In fact, it's vital, I think, to understand the causes of progress over the past few decades if we're able to continue to affect that progress in the future. And the Commission's report talked about how, um, for example, if you look at second-generation immigrants who are in some cases surpassing uh, white natives when it comes to educational outcomes, a classic example, but they do talk about how it's been imperfect uh, and mixed progress as well. Matthew, you, um, you've you read some of this report. What are your thoughts on the kind of broad image that it paints of modern Britain? Look, I think in many ways it was a lot more balanced and nuanced than Aria has, as, sorry, as Aria has said, and, and then its critics have given it credit for. I, I do like, and I do quite enjoy, and, and this is a, a point I occasionally try to make in my everything is awesome um, student presentation is just how much attitudes towards race have liberalized in the UK and in, in Western countries. Um, you can, you can do a compare very clear comparative study um, using the global value survey. You can say that racism is hugely de- declined in a lot of developed countries um, and that the UK has, has made a lot of progress in this respect. And then you can also look at the extent of disparity in the opportunities and also make a positive case. But I also think going forward that, that there's a need to reset the narrative to some extent, which is if the narrative is purely pessimistic about race and says, well, if you're not white, then more or less you're screwed. You can't achieve anything in life. The whole system is rigged against you. Um, you can't go anywhere. I think that's really quite demotivating at an individual level. Um, there needs to, I, I think a much more positive um, optimistic narrative is quite important to say to someone, yes, of course, you know, there are racial disparities. You know, you might not have the same opportunities as everyone else. You might encounter racism um, in, in your journey uh, through life. But at the same time, um, you have extraordinary opportunities in, in this country. Um, if you work hard, you will be able to achieve. Um, don't not apply for that job. Um, don't not apply for that university course. You've got to make every effort to achieve and work hard. Um, uh, they didn't really kind of include my, my own, like, experience of this, which is anti-Semitism um, in this report. But I think the Jewish community's general reaction is, well, yeah, wherever we go, we're going to find anti-Semitism, but geez, we're going to work pretty hard to, to create value for society and, and grow businesses and go go to school and go to university and, and do the best we can in any society that we're in. So I think that kind of philosophy where you work to overcome rather than this kind of institutional race racism narrative um, that often is, I think, excessively critical um, and doesn't acknowledge the progress that has existed. And I know that's quite hard. For, if you're a young person who feels like, you know, the world is still racist, it is tough to hear someone say, well, it's not as bad as it once was. That's not good enough for you. You want something better. Um, you, you want something way better than that. And you don't think you should have to experience any racism and, and you're completely right. But at the same time, in order, as you've said very well, Daniel, in order to keep achieving that kind of progress, to, to work towards that society that Martin Luther King talked about, that, that post-racial you know, it doesn't matter the, the color of your skin, but what remains the character of your heart. It's going to take a positive, optimistic approach rather than a, a very pessimistic, nothing can get better approach. I think it's going to take an evidence-based one as well. If you look at the the commission talking about various things that, that are designed to tackle racist attitudes or potentially racist hiring practices, for example, they point out that 
actually the evidence around things like um, diversity training and, and diversity policies and things like that is is very weak. I think they they conclude that they, they simply don't work to address um, racial disparities. I'm not sure the evidence is quite that strong either way. But the broader point that you know if we want to address racism, then we need to do some research on on what works is is really important. Um, and the other thing here is is looking at kind of an objection that comes up from people. That, oh, well, it might be that overtly racist attitudes have, have declined over the past few decades, but actually um, kind of internalized or kind of quiet racism is still just as prevalent as it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I remember, Aria, we had we were having a chat about this before the, the webinar on the topic, and, and you made uh, an extremely good point about... Um, the rates of interracial marriages going up. And that seems to me, and, and as you pointed out, a pretty good proxy of people's serious non-racism if they're willing to marry someone from uh, from someone of another race. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it's a real, it's a real good sign of integration. And like the UK, I think also has one of the highest rates in proportion to what our ethnic minority population is as well, which I think also think is a really good sign. Apparently in the States, the States is much more diverse, right? But in the States, the rates of intermarriage are much lower as a proportion. Um, so I think that's a that's that's a solid sign that the UK is a much more accepting place, and it doesn't make sense to bring over American narratives about race. I, I think it's also another, another interesting point here as well is that if you just kind of highlight racism and say you know Britain is racist, all you white people are terrible, um, that has an inevitable backlash effect. It, it's it's been kind of quite well studied in psychology, the idea of the authoritarian instinct that if you as a you know white person see all these people talking about how you're racist to them, that can actually increase your sense of identity as a white person. Um, and then you end up becoming more racist and more uh, attuned to it and you end up with a more tribal society um, and you end up with pitting races against each other, which is obviously exactly the one thing that you do not want because that's when you end up with yeah. more racism and more racial conflict. Um, and that's something the UK has, I think, to some extent been better at avoiding um, than, than the US in terms of uh, kind of like a far right, um, you know, KKK kind of thing. It's not to say that there aren't, you know, extremist racist groups and, and fascist groups and, and whatever else and white supremacist groups, they, they certainly exist. But I don't think that's mainstream or broad or, or, you know, particularly significant. And we want it to stay that way. And you don't want to provide useful narratives to um, those people that, well, if you're a white working class person, then, you know, society doesn't care about you. They only care about people who are minorities. You know, you have to fight back. You have to take up arms. I don't think that's the kind of outcome you want. Yeah, I think it's really important that race doesn't become an important part of people's identity because I, I think it is probably true and probably not good, but true that people will always discriminate in favour of people who they think are like them. Um, but I think it is better that, when people do that, they're going on traits like, do we have the same kind of interests? Do we have like a whole bunch of different cultural touchstones? Do we have a similar language? Do we like the same memes kind of thing, rather than um, if they're going based on race? So I have like a preference for people, like a preference for the colorblind approach. Like I know it's a bit, I know it's not very fashionable, but I think it is better that we don't think too hard about what race we all are. And instead, we think about the things that are more key to your character. Right. And one, one of the kind of, I guess, more legitimate forms uh, of backlash when it comes to the white working class is the criticism that a lot of the time people aren't really focusing on class at all when it comes to addressing or, or examining disparities in the UK. Um, and if you look at, for example, educational outcomes for some in the white working class, you have this kind of paradox where actually, if you look at uh, primary and secondary level education, outcomes tend to be 
some of the worst for um, for white working class Brits. But actually, when it comes to university level, a lot of those outcomes tend to reverse themselves. You kind of have this, this very odd situation where, at the end of the day, unemployment rates for um, for white working class Brits tend to be better, even though their educational outcomes are arguably worse. Do you think that um, I guess going to you first on this area that class is is worth considering more when it comes to these sort of discussions and, and is overlooked um, or is this kind of another form of identity politics that we don't actually want to see? I think class probably is really worth considering. I, I think it's probably worth more considering more than race, actually. Um, it's, obviously, it's obviously very, very difficult to say definitively because you can only draw upon your own experience. But um, I've got like a whole bunch of white working class family who are based in the Midlands. And then I've got me and my parents um, who are sort of middle class brown people. And it definitely feels true that their lives um, and their like material conditions are slightly worse uh, for my for my white family um so i think intuitively it does seem that class seems to tell more of a story about how your life is going to go in the uk but it's much harder to measure because it's really difficult to identify what social class people are um mm. and therefore you can't really get good data on it because people will just tell you um and they when they use, tell you um, what class they are income is a, is a pretty good determiner of of outcomes to some extent or Oh, I don't a, think classic it's... Non, a classic non-Brit talking about no, no, not not a, not a sign of talk about no, no, not not a sign of um, <laughs> class in the in the social media class, but yeah. in terms of what you care about, which is you know people's quality of life. I mean, at some point, you know, if you've got enough income, your quality of life is only going to marginally improve. But the difference between having you know, five thousand pounds a year and ten thousand pounds or twenty thousands is quite significant. So, do you think you can't really use income because the social characteristics are more important? That's what's keeping you down. Yeah, I really, yeah, I really think that's the case. I think um, sort of a PhD student or an or an artist who lives in London has clearly got a lot more social capital than someone who is um who is like working in a trade in, in like a different part of the country. And even even if they're earning like roughly the same amounts, or even if the tradesperson's earning a lot more, it's still clear you know university educated people or like teachers who, who might not earn as much are still like a, a higher social class yeah, and they it's, have it's more of a status more doors open to them yeah it's more of a, yeah. a status kind of um, situation which i think interacts with the kind of old british class system in an interesting way because effectively the new class is that higher educated in a city high status um class of people that um not necessarily everyone wants to be part of or is um a good person necessarily someone who's good to be part of it i mean if you're in that position you get a university degree you're, you're probably you know on average going to be better off but it's quite variable depending on obviously what's green what you're studying what you do and, and the kind of outcomes it's you not get from true it. actually um in the in the uk men who go to university um by the time they're 25 26 actually earn less than men who don't go to university probably because they're, they're the ones who don't go to university are getting real skills and real jobs as opposed to us yeah university graduate uh 25 26 <laughs> 27 year olds what are you talking about, Matt? We we earn twenty, we earn two hundred fifty thousand pounds a year at the ASI. So for our listeners who don't uh, have not familiar with this one, for the avoidance of doubt, that is not actually how much we earn. It was a a previous um, myth spread around Twitter, although many still believe it. Um, I just just going back for a second, I'm I'm kind of yeah interested in the the discussion that you had um on the webinar that, that if you're interested in this this topic was uh, far more serious and in depth with far smarter people on this um than than myself that kind of idea of intersectionality the sense in which Calvin in particular is making a, a strong argument that he's not interested in you know, separating people by class and gender and race and intersectionality is quite dangerous 
and, and you responded quite effectively, Ari, that, well, in order to understand people's individual situation, you actually do need to consider intersectionality. I'm wondering if you want to go into that a, a bit more. Yeah. So I think people misunderstand intersectionality. I only understand intersectionality because I spent a lot of time on Tumblr when I was a teenager. Um, but like, I think I think from the outside, a lot a lot of left wing ideas all seem like they're the same thing. So I guess, shall I, shall I explain what I think it is? Go right ahead. So, so like critical race theory, I think, starts from the the very reasonable, I think, um, assumption um, that certain structures in society that have been built by white people, while they do not on the surface level look like they're discriminatory, are actually discriminatory because they don't take into account different people's preferences. So I think Sunday trading laws would be a good example of something to view through the lens of, lens of critical race theory because it prioritizes Christian habits, whereas it discriminates against Jewish people who have their Sabbath on a different day or um, people for whom Sundays are just not important at all. Um, and then people have sometimes taken that too far to be like, every everything is um is built like this um and intersectionality is almost the opposite way of looking at things where you're like well you might be christian but you also work these days or you're like this particular race or you're a mum and therefore it breaks things down even further and it looks more at the individual than it does big groups i think that's that's kind of highlighting one of the reasons why there is this instinctive hostility to the concept of institutional racism because i think for a lot of people when they hear the word racism they think that they're being accused of something overt and intentional um whereas i think that you know there's something very banal almost about analyzing how institutions have ended up um having these sort of outcomes almost without um at least in some cases consciously racist administrators or, or design it's just uh, you know it's a byproduct of of our history uh, and previous historical racism, uh, and to some extent, you know, the lack of, of proper thought about how something is designed now. Um, so again, not necessarily overt racism, but people's instinctive reaction as well. You know, if, if you're saying something is institutionally racist, that must mean that I, you're accusing me personally of being an overt racist, which tends to provoke a backlash that I think is, is kind of counterproductive. Whereas if you say, you know, something about say Sunday trading laws, or you say policing or something like that although policing i think there probably is a strong case for there being more um you know obvious racist practices going on as the report highlighted stop and search um practices for example i i i probably have a bit of a um analytical question though when claims are made about institutional racism i mean i don't doubt that it can exist but if you want to the, the kind of the problem with it to the to some extent is that it's kind of very hard to identify and fix it's just kind of there in the institution often and if the if proper and good analysis is done which it sometimes is to identify you know what part of the institution is having a racial impact and impacting people um is it is it institutional racism was racism and we've, we've said what the issue is and we've, we've tried um to address it and if you, you're just kind of saying you know the police are racist and you know britain's racist and and parliament's right it's like you just it feels like a, a rhetorical trick rather than something that's particularly helpful or useful or even analytically valid. And, and also it's worth pointing out that just because something has a racially unequal outcome doesn't necessarily mean that there has been racism. There, there can be other explanations of things that are going on. That's actually in some ways where intersectionality can be just maybe it's, it's something, you know, I don't think that this racism explains why white working class people are doing worse um, in terms of edu- educational outcome than people from an East Asian background. I, I don't think that 
is a particularly good explanatory um, point to make. Um, and it would be quite absurd to say it. And in reverse, you can understand more depth and, and have some more nuance to it than just saying such and such is institutionally racist. And I think in that sense, there is some rightful criticism that idea has been overused. Right. And that's that's quite a good example, I think, of of intersectionality being valuable. If you, you're, you're right that you can't say, it doesn't make sense to say white working class British outcomes are worse because of racism. That seems kind of nonsensical um, when, when you say it out loud. What I think makes more sense, you can say that class is playing a significant role here. Uh, and actually class is one of the key distinctions as well as um, regional disparities when it comes to um, outcomes for, for white working class Brits. And the same is true in a lot of different areas when it comes to analysing um, racial disparities more broadly. I mean, it could be, for example, that people of a certain race tend to live in a certain area um, and that area tends to have uh, a much lower income. And actually, the reason is because of regional disparities rather than anything else. Or it could be uh, to do with religion or it could be to do with many different other aspects of identity. Um, and that's why I think doing the analysis in specific situations is so important when you say for example you know saying that the police are racist is not necessarily very productive on an analytical sense what is very productive or could be at least is saying well stop and search rates for cannabis possession are nine times as higher for black people compared to white people even though they use um, cannabis at roughly the same rates in the uk if you drill down into very specific examples i think that's where you start to to really help um, help yourself understand these issues and, and look at how to deal with them. And I think that's probably going to be my final question is, you know, from a liberal perspective, how can we use our, our liberal free market ideas to help address some of the, the unjust racial disparities in the UK? Where, where would you start, Aria? I don't know. I don't think I have a good answer. Like, I think I think these things are very complicated um, and difficult. And I think we've done all the low hanging fruit policies. Um, basically, I think obviously stopping stop and search or at least radically changing it could make a big idea, but I, make a big difference. But I don't think I don't actually think any there are any liberal solutions left. Aria, don't we just need to abolish the police? Won't that fix all the world's problems? <laughs> Ultra liberal solution. I mean, of course, what is it? Only one in five black British people think that abolishing the police would be a good idea, especially since if you're living in an area with more crime, as, as you tend to, if you're lower income and, and of a minority background, you, you probably actually want the police around, you don't want to get rid of them. Um, I'm interested um, in terms of some of our thoughts, some of the kind of the traditional ideas in terms of just increasing opportunity, um, things like criminal justice reform, so not putting people away for um, minute crimes that tends to have you know, impact on white people, but probably a disproportionate impact on, on people from minority backgrounds. Um, things like school choice and educational opportunity. We know a lot of the reasons why students from minority backgrounds struggle is because they're not getting a good quality state education. They're being held down. You know, it's the same case for, I would say, work, white working class kids who are sent to crappy public schools and they're, they're just not getting the same opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think these solutions are necessarily, you know, end point about race. And I, I think part of the issue here is that often if you focus on race, you don't actually focus on what the issue is at hand, which is, you know, are we getting a good quality education to people and a, a good byproduct of improving the quality of education and improving the opportunities people get? And I know my, my classic ASI hat, cutting taxes and red tape or whatever it may be, um, those will have broader impacts that will lift people up um, that, are, that are quite positive and, and useful and, and valuable. Um, and those are the kind of liberal solutions we, we can think about and we can 
think about them, you know, how they can impact different racial groups as well and provide a stronger case for those policies accordingly. Yeah, and I think so. Th- I remember one of the interesting parts of the report is they talk about how, um, and like they're very, they're very clear not to blame anyone, but they talk about how um, you, children have very different life outcomes um, based on whether or not their um, their parents are basically still together while they're at home. And I don't think the government should do anything to make it so that parents definitely stay together and they don't get divorced or anything. But there are things that they can do to make it easier to raise children as a single parent household. And that's obviously, I think it will have a lot of beneficial effects when it comes to race. But I think it's also just a good thing to do. Like it should be easier for single parents to be able to raise their kids. Yeah, and thinking think about things like shared parenting as well and, and how that can work more effectively legally and, and whatever else. And it, it ties in quite nicely to some of the work we do around liberalising childcare regulations as well. It's one of those things where it's a good thing to do regardless, but it's an especially good thing to do if you think about the potentially magnified positive impact it will have on, um, on single parent households in minority communities as well. Um, but with that uh, kind of... I think optimistic note that there there is things that we can do that improve everyone's lives um, and could help to address some of the racial disparities in the UK. I think it's probably time to finish up for this episode of the podcast. So it just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us, uh, Head of Research and my co-host Matthew Lesh and Arya Babu of the Entrepreneurs Network, Senior Researcher and Head of the Female Founders Forum. And if you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or your chosen podcast provider. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week for another episode of The Pin Factory. Mm-hmm.